The Homeland Security Department seems new at a mere 20 years old, but it has a lot of really old information technology, politely called legacy systems. The Government Accountability Office gave DHS a list of recommendations for modernizing, but as you might have guessed, there's still a lot of work to do. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity, Kevin Walsh. Kevin, good to have you back. Tom, thank you for having me on. Now, of course, DHS is new as a department, but it is a conglomeration of agencies that were mostly pre-existing, so they do have this legacy. Let's define the term here, legacy system. How old does something have to be to be legacy, or is it a matter of functionality and cybersecurity more than physical age? So, fantastic question. There's a lot of debate or discussion on what exactly should constitute a legacy system. Some people would say it's anything older than X amount of years. Other agencies define it as when you stop trying to improve it. But I think probably the best definition comes from our federal CIO, who has said that legacy systems are those that are outdated or obsolete. So they may have heightened security risks or aren't meeting mission needs. Basically, their time has come. They're no longer doing the job, but we're still having them limp along trying to do the job that they once did. So they're like a car with a carburetor. It still runs, but you can't get parts for the carburetor anymore. Right. And some of this is because the government has different fiscal motivations and different capabilities than what you might see in the private sector. In the private sector, the dollar is king and you know, if that new system or if that modernization or improvement is going to bring in more money, then yeah, let's do it. But in the federal government, where we are trying to be responsible stewards of taxpayer dollars, and frankly, our current budget situation is somewhat challenging at times, that's not always the case. So we wind up with these systems that are limping along, doing part of the job that they were you know, intended to do, and we're having to use manual workarounds to get the rest of the job done. And you also found that DHS is well aware of what they are. There's a chart here, System 4, System L, and System M. Are those so designated because of cybersecurity issues you don't want to say what it is they actually do? Spot on. So those are systems. We went through a list and flagged 63 across the government, in part thanks to agencies' own identification. And then we flagged the top 10 in no particular order, so there's no significance to DHS having System 4. But those are what we thought at the time, the most critical legacy systems in the government in need of modernization. All right. And the recommendations that you issued to GAO a couple of years ago, just briefly review what those were and which ones have they embarked on, and then we'll get into which ones you feel they still need to get on the stick for. Sure. So we made some overarching recommendations to OMB. We wanted OMB to require all agencies to identify where their legacy systems are, flag which ones may have performance issues, and plan to make modernization. So there's that big picture kind of recommendation. And then in addition to that, we made some specific recommendations to DHS in that report. Most importantly was to make sure that their modernization plan for System 4, the one we looked at in depth, was complete. They have since closed that recommendation. Kudos to them. But in the most recent testimony and discussion, we also highlighted three additional systems that DHS has really been trying to modernize in some cases for the past few decades. Uh, For example, they've been trying to modernize their financial systems. They're on their third attempt in the past 15-ish years. Similarly, they are working on their grants management modernization at FEMA. And the final and third system that we highlighted was DHS's Homeland Advanced Recognition Technology System, shortened to HART, which handles biometrics and fingerprinting. And in each of those three cases, 
they have issues. For example, their financial systems modernization, I mentioned that this is their third swing at the bat. That one recently breached schedule and performance goals. And so that's a problem. DHS Heart, they have problems with their management of risks, mitigation and monitoring, and their grants modernization initiative recently breached their cost. They have a new estimate that's you know almost two and a half times the original. So in total, to those three additional systems, we made 19 recommendations. DHS has closed 11 of them. So again, kudos to them, but there's still a lot of work remaining here. We are speaking with Kevin Walsh. He's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office. Now, you mentioned the FEMA grants program, and that was the subject of a hearing, and they're aware of that. The financial systems, is that a DHS-wide program that covers all of the components, or is it specific to one of the agencies like FEMA grants? So their initial attempt... This is the one where they're on their third attempt. You know, one of the earlier attempts did try that DHS-wide, hey, let's get everybody on the same financial system. That didn't work. Instead, now they are trying to have individual components move and modernize their financial systems. At some point in the future, perhaps they will move to that singular overarching financial plan. But for right now, they are working on the financial systems at Coast Guard, FEMA, and ICE, and apologies for all these acronyms, in June of 2022, the Coast Guard declared initial operating capability. The key word is initial. Right, right. And they still haven't declared final operating capability. So despite almost declaring success a year ago now, they still haven't been able to you know, land the plane and finish the system. Or launch the cutter, let's say, and get out of harbor. Let's put it, <laughs> put it that yeah, way in a Coast using Guard Using the context. sailing metaphor, yep. Okay, I guess with all of those financial systems component by component, I kind of smell a future platform for application programming interfaces coming up. One would hope that they're incorporating those kinds of plans and lessons learned right now. And on the biometrics, that's another type of functionality that crosses a number of DHS components, you know, for, say, fingerprinting or imaging people coming across the border to the TSA's well-known systems. When it comes to the heart system, the biometrics, that cuts across numerous agencies. And so is that also a cross-cutting department-wide functionality, or is that also component-specific? So, so, yeah, DHS Heart is a DHS initiative. As you correctly note, it involves a lot of law enforcement. The problem is their current system, IDENT, originally was operational in 1994. So this is pre-DHS's formation. However, the problems with that system are that it cannot handle well multiple biometrics, so it can't have you know fingerprints and facial scans at the same time. Uh, it also has issues with performance cost, security, requirements. So not all that surprising in a system that's built in 1994. But most recently, in 2020, they had a cost and schedule breach due to what they called an overly complex high-risk design. So this is one of those instances where they're trying to build this massive, massive system, and it's just very, very complex and hard to do when you're talking about all these different players and meeting all of the needs. So, yeah, DHS-wide on that one. I guess they could test it on people who are coming through Ash Wednesday, and you could get facial recognition and a thumbprint at the same time. <laughs> Maybe that would really <laughs> confuse it. Maybe, yeah. DHS agrees with the remainder of the eight recommendations that are still open, fair to say? Yeah, and to their credit, DHS is addressing our recommendations at a better clip than average in the government. So these recommendations are also related to our high-risk area on IT acquisitions and operations. So GAO has its high-risk list, and 
IT acquisitions and operations have been on there since, I believe, 2015. And that includes recommendations to many agencies. So again, DHS is doing a good job here and they're working diligently. But this legacy and IT modernization issue, Tom, is not something that is going to go away soon or quickly, and it's going to require years and years of work. And just by point of comparison, even though DHS does have a good load of legacy, they are not alone, and some of their legacy doesn't begin to compare with the age and obsolescence of legacy systems in some of the other agencies. That is correct. And I would also add that the full scope of this legacy issue is not yet known. The recommendation I mentioned earlier to OMB about making sure that agencies know where their legacy systems are, so identify them and then prioritize what they want to replace and then actually start doing the work. That first step, identify where the legacy systems are. The implication there is that agencies need to figure out what they have before they can start prioritizing what needs to be done. And so, yeah, you are spot on. There's a lot of really, really old systems out there. I mentioned IDENT was built in 94. That's a spring chicken compared to some of the systems at other agencies. True enough. Kevin Walsh is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from 
formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have 
you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.